0: The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com slash connect. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts
1: as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation
0: but deliver us from evil.
1: For yours is the kingdom,
0: the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. good morning. I changed it up on you this morning. like, do I sit? Do I not? What do I do? (laughs) It's good to be with you guys. Uh, No scripture reading for this series because the bumper video is the scripture reading. So there you go. Uh, If you have a Bible, go ahead and get there. Matthew chapter six. We are going to be spending the next uh, six weeks leading up to Easter talking about prayer. And I'm going to kind of get into it in a little bit. Uh, But before we do that, I just want to point your attention to a few resources throughout this series that have been so helpful uh, for me personally, as I've just been praying and thinking about uh, prayer. There is no shortage of books on prayer out there, and so I want to help point you to some good ones. Um, so if anything I say today resonates with you, uh, two books in particular, these will be on the website as well, uh, The Way of the Heart by Henry Nowin. This is the best book I've ever written on si- or read on silence, not read it, <laughs> read on silence and solitude, how to actually get alone with the Lord. And so The Way of the Heart, Henry Nowin. Second is a book uh, by a guy named John Stark called The Possibility of Prayer. Uh, John Stark is actually a pastor in the church planning network that we are a part of at Citizen Uh, He's a pastor up in New York City at a church called Apostles. Uh, The Possibility of Prayer, John Stark. Incredible book on how to be a person of prayer in the modern Western world. I mean, just an incredible, incredible resource. So The Way of the Heart, Henry Nowen, Possibility of Prayer, John Stark. I've read both of them. I did not write either one. Um, Let me pray for us, and then let's talk about prayer. Lord, uh, we come before you once again. And a, another day, and a whole string of days that make up our life, and there's a lot of things that are, are going to happen. There's a lot of things that we are going to think and feel and talk about and meditate on and live into. And so, I just pray over the next few minutes that this
1: would be a different space than the rest of those spaces. Lord, as we're about to think about and talk about from your word, God, you meet us with your presence in prayer. God, and so I pray that this would not just be an idea, this would not just be something that feels far off or distant. This would not just be something for someone else, but this would be something for us. You, us, in prayer, communing together. We need you. We love you. these sings in Christ's name, and all God's people said... Amen. Well,
0: imagine with me for a second that you had the opportunity to follow Jesus around for three years during his earthly ministry. You traveled with him from town to town and you watched and listened as he preached sermons to huge crowds of people. You saw the miracles he performed of feeding the 5,000 and walking on water and calming the sea, healing the sick, raising the dead, giving sight to the blind. And you have a chance now to ask Jesus to teach you something. what do you ask now for me personally as someone who is often hungry I'm asking about the multiply food trick right like I want to know how do I turn five loaves of bread and two fish into food for the rest of my days because eggs aren't expensive right what do you ask Jesus what do you ask him to teach you your rabbi your messiah your savior your lord what do you ask him to teach you Well, in Luke chapter 11, we have this request from the disciples. The only thing in all four gospel accounts, the disciples ask Jesus to teach them. Luke 11 verse 1, Lord, teach us to pray. Not teach us to heal, not teach us to walk on water, not teach us to calm the sea, not teach us even to raise the dead, but rather teach us to pray which communicates, I think, at least two things. The first is the necessity of prayer. The disciples, you see, would not have been strangers to prayer. They would have come from a rich Jewish tradition of rhythmic fixed hour prayer, where they would have been taught from a young age, set prayers to pray both individually and together at certain times of the day. They would have been trained and well-versed in prayer and the language of the prayers from the Psalms and the Torah. Their question reveals they've seen something different in their rabbi Jesus. They've seen a way of prayer that is unusual and distinct. They've seen a life of prayer that is a priority for Jesus. If you track through the gospels, he often leaves very flourishing times of ministry to go be alone with the Father. They've seen a life of prayer that is personal. And how he talks with God and spends time with him. They've seen a life of prayer that is powerful, leading out to all sorts of ministry in the world. And so they would have started to understand the importance of what it means to learn to pray like Jesus. If Jesus, their rabbi and savior, thought prayer was so necessary for his life in the world, how much more for them and for us as his followers. You see, prayer is much less, how many of us think of it, like a perfume or a cologne, right? Like a good addition to the air, but altogether not necessary. And rather, prayer for the Christian is much more like oxygen. It's essential. It's necessary. It's required for our very life with God. The great 18th century British preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, A prayerless soul is a Christless soul. Prayerless soul is a Christless soul. Or consider the the words of modern day theologian J.I. Packer, it is not too much to say that God made us to pray. That prayer is not the easiest, but the most natural activity in which we ever engage. And that prayer is the measure of us all in God's sight. Prayer is the most essential of the spiritual practices. We must pray. The second thing we see in the request to Jesus from the disciples is the difficulty of prayer. So they have not only seen this is necessary, this is something that all Christians must step into, but it's also difficult. Asking Jesus to teach them to pray reveals they experienced a gap between what they saw in him and his prayer life and what they experienced themselves in prayer, which is true for many of us, is it not? Prayer can often feel, for many of us, less like a beautiful invitation and more like a shame-filled burden. We're well aware that our prayer life doesn't feel robust and full of life, but rather much more one of fits and starts, right? Something that feels awkward and clunky, something that we enter into with best of intentions and find on the other side of our dear God that we've become bored or distracted or maybe even fallen asleep prayer is difficult, not just as Christians, but also as modern Western Americans. Our culture is not one which is friendly to prayer. So think about it with me, right? Our culture is self-preoccupied, but prayer is about God. Our culture is self-reliant, but prayer assumes neediness. Our culture is busy running here and there. Prayer requires dedicated, extended periods of time. Our culture is pragmatic, doing whatever works. Prayer seems incredibly inefficient. Our culture is distracted. Prayer requires focus and attention. Our culture is noisy. Prayer flourishes in silence and solitude. Our culture is cynical, and prayer requires hope. Everything in the world we inhabit draws us away from a quiet life of prayer with God. And then you add on to that our own disappointments in prayer, prayers that seem to be left unanswered or answered differently than we had hoped they would be. And it's no wonder that prayer for many of us, even those of us who are striving with everything we have to live a life of being with Jesus, just feels difficult and mysterious and challenging and defeating. And so many of us resign ourselves. A flourishing prayer life is just not for me. Maybe it's for the spiritually elite. Maybe it's for those with a distinct contemplative personality. Maybe it's those with just a less busy lot in life than my responsibilities. Maybe prayer is for those who God answered their prayers miraculously in the past. And so, of course, they're going to be a people of prayer. It's just not for me. And yet, we must pray. We must pray. So I don't know about you, but I find great comfort in the example of the disciples when they ask Jesus this simple and yet profound request, Lord, teach us to pray. But I also find great comfort in the fact that Jesus does, right? When they ask him, Lord, teach us to pray, he in fact teaches them and he teaches them not with theory, not with ideas or tips or practical how to's. He teaches them to pray by giving them a prayer, a prayer not simply to be prayed or read word for word, although that's perfectly fine as a part of our prayers, but a prayer as a guide, a, a prayer template, if you will, for a life of prayer with God. So for the ne- course of the next six weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to make the same request of Jesus every Sunday and throughout the week in our Lent guide. We're going to ask Lord, teach us to pray. We're going to walk together through not Luke's version, but Matthew's version of Jesus's response. It's the same prayer, a little bit different, but we're going to look at Matthew's recording of the Lord's prayer, this prayer Jesus gives to his disciples in Matthew 6, line by line, learning from Jesus how to become a people who pray. Now, I want to give you a fair warning, uh, as we're about to look together at the first line of the Lord's prayer today, that today might be a little bit frustrating for uh, maybe most of us in the room, including myself. For those of us who lean practical or pragmatic, which I would say is the bent of most American Christianity, we would say, hey, tell me how to pray, right? Like Jesus wants us to pray. We want to be a people who pray. Tell me what to do. Tell me what to say. Give me the acronym. What is it like ACTS, like adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, right? Like tell me the step-by-step formula so I can go into my 10 minutes, calendared out with God and be a person of prayer. Now, here's the good news for you. Over the next five weeks, you're going to really like this series, all right? I'm going to give us a lot of things to pray and how to pray over the next five weeks. We're going to talk about prayers of adoration, which is the prayers of thanksgiving. We're going to talk about prayers of lament and grief. We're going to talk about prayers of petition and intercession, which are fancy Bible words for requests to God. We're going to talk about prayers of examination and confession. Search me, O God, and know my heart. And then we're going to finish by talking about prayers of spiritual warfare, which will be a ton of fun. We're going to journey into all of that over the next five weeks, what to pray and how to pray those specific types of prayers. But what I want to show us today is that those things are the trees, not the forest. Those are all aspects of a bigger, overarching forest of a prayer life with God. They are all parts that make up a larger whole, the larger forest of prayer that every other type of prayer fits into that I think is best described as communion with God. God. Communion with God. That is the forest of prayer. Communion, calm meaning with, union meaning oneness. Oneness with God. We're talking about it this week at Teaching Team, and uh, one of the folks gave the example of, if I tell you to go sit in a forest, right, and you go pick a singular tree in the middle of a field and go, found it. That's a tree. That's not a forest. So all I want to do is invite us in our prayer lives to look at how have I been sitting under a tree and missed the forest? How have I picked one good part of prayer and missed the bigger invitation of life with God that I am being invited into? The baseline of prayer is that we get to be with God. So that means bringing requests is a part of prayer, but it's not the whole. Emotional experiences are a part of prayer, but they're not the whole. Receiving from God, his love, his mercy, his compassion, his care, it's a part of prayer, but it's not the whole. Being changed and sanctified by the Holy Spirit is a part of prayer, but it's not the whole. The forest that holds all of those trees, what prayer is about in its most foundational understanding is being with God. And the best way to think about it is if Lindsay and I were to go on a date, right? There's going to be lots of different parts that are an aspect of that date, right? We're going to eat a meal together, spend time together, talk. There's going to be conversation. We're going to joke and laugh. We're going to ask questions and make requests of one another. But the overarching goal behind all of those things is that we get to be together. We get to spend time in one another's presence. Let me kind of say it this way that you can uh, write it down and take with you. Prayer at its most basic level is communion with the wonderful and powerful person of God. Prayer at its most basic level
1: is communion with the wonderful and powerful person of God. is how spiritual director Strawn Coleman writes it. He
0: says, communion is a way of being with God that doesn't demand emotional experiences, answers, or gifts as some kind of spiritual commodity, but just values God, however he longs to give himself. Those things will come because God is the most cheerful giver, but they're not what satisfies us most prayer at its most basic level is communion with the wonderful and powerful person of God. And we see that in the very first line of the Lord's prayer. So look there with me, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Jesus says to his disciples, "Pray then like this:
1: Our Father in heaven." Isn't that incredible. Our Father in
0: Heaven. Now, what Jesus is doing here is more than just a preliminary greeting, right? So he's not saying, hey, when you pray, make sure God is listening, right? Like, all right, I'm praying now, God, yes, you, God, in Heaven, I'm talking to you. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's showing us something so much bigger. In the very first line of the prayer, Jesus turns our attention off of the what of prayer and onto the who of prayer. In this template of prayer he gives his disciples, he begins with a simple line that grounds the entirety of everything else in the prayer underneath a relationship between us and God. Through this opening line, Jesus shows us that prayer is much less about what we're saying and much more about who we're saying it to. That's the invitation of this first line. Prayer is much less about what we're saying and much more about who we're saying it to. And I love that Jesus starts here because what I've realized over years as both a pastor and as follower of Jesus is that often our inability to have a consistent prayer life is not a struggle with prayer. It's actually a struggle with God. We aren't uncertain about prayer as much as we're uncertain about the God we pray to. We're unsure if he exists, if he actually listens, and if he does, does he care? And is he good? And is he going to do anything? Just like we talked about two weeks ago with living on mission, that so much of the reason why we don't share our faith is not because we're afraid or we don't know what to say. It's because we're not certain God wants to still save people. The same is true in prayer. Our struggle with praying is not so much we aren't sure what to say or how to do it or how busy we are or what it looks like or any of that. Foundationally, we're just not sure about the God we're supposed to meet in prayer. This is the way J.I. Packer says it. He says people feel a problem about prayer because of the muddle they are in about God. If you are uncertain whether God exists, whether he is personal or good or in control of things, or concerned about ordinary folks like you and me, you are bound to conclude that prayer is pretty pointless, not to say trivial, and then you won't do it. So, if at its most basic level of prayer, if at its most basic level, prayer is about communion with God, and the reason we struggle with prayer is because of our struggles with God, then it would make sense that Jesus would begin his template of prayer by reminding us of who God is. Because that is the first step into prayer. Not by learning how to pray, but by remembering the God we pray with and to who meets us in prayer. So let's spend our our last kind of few minutes together this morning before we actually practice by looking at who Jesus says God is very simple yet wondrously beautiful address, our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. We doing good? Everybody good? Getting a lot of tired stares this morning. We good? Talking about God. Isn't that fun? Two incredible realities. Number one. Thank you. Number one, our Father our Father. There's two realities wrapped up. When you get to go line by line, you get to kind of break it down like this, which is a ton of fun. First, he says, our Father. Now, this would kind of to us is a line we kind of like fly through. We're like, dear God, our Father, Abba, like whatever you want to say. And we kind of get to like the daily bread part or the request part or like whatever we're going to pray about. But this line would have um, metaphorically knocked the disciples off of their feet. This is a shocking line to ancient Jews that Jesus would say, the first thing you say or invited into in prayer is our father. You see, in the Jewish religious system, God's name was held in such reverence that you are not allowed to speak or even write his name. That's how other or holy or magnificent they viewed God in this culture, that you are not even allowed to say Yahweh, let alone write his name right? Think about it this way. Think about how God shows up to various people throughout the Old Testament. If you were to read the Old Testament narrative, he shows up as a pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke to the Israelites wandering in the desert, right? He shows up in a burning bush to Moses. He shows up as fire from heaven when Elijah's going against the prophets of Baal. And so the big question for the Jewish people was never, does God exist, right? That would be a silly question. Hey, is God real? I don't know. Look at the cloud of smoke and the pillar of fire from heaven, The question ancient Jews asked was never, is God real, but rather, is God knowable? Could they actually know him and be known by him? And Jesus says, yes, you can call him father. And not only can you know him, you can know him in a way more deeply intimate than you can even imagine. Because we don't just pray to a father, we pray to our father which is shocking because what Jesus is doing is inviting his disciples to pray as if his father is now their father, as if they can know God and be known by God in the same way as Jesus, which we know is true in the gospel. Is it not? Right? The good news of the gospel is that through faith in Jesus, we get what is Christ. Jesus, who is the Son of God, through his life, death, and resurrection, unites us to himself and brings us into union with God. That is one of the deepest realities of our faith, that if you are a Christian, you are united to God. You have permanent communion with him as his child through Jesus. And so you can know him and you can be known by him in a way that you will spend the rest of your life figuring out the glory and weight and impact of. If you are in Christ, you are known by God in such a way that you have his full delight. I was reminded of this this Wednesday during Ash Wednesday when we sang that line, those he saves are his delight. He is present with us, that he longs to know us and care for us and be with us. I mean, I was just messed up about this in my prayer life this week. So when you're a perfectionist bent like I am, one of the things you have to learn to pray early in your walk with Jesus to grow in your sanctification is, Lord, would you just remind me of your delight in me? Like, would you just remind me that in Christ, everything that is Christ is now mine? And one of the things we've been uh, experiencing over the past few months as parents is that uh, Harper, our almost three-year-old, when she's in trouble, when she's getting punished, uh, so she knows I disobeyed, I broke the rule, I did something I shouldn't have done, uh, which is a lot for her as a three-year-old. Uh, she'll, she'll sit there. And when you're trying to tell her, Hey, you've disobeyed, you did something wrong. Here's what happened. She has this look on her face and then you stop and you go, what's, what's wrong. And she looks at you and over and over again, she asks this question. She says, you happy daddy? You happy, daddy? Over, I mean, just, you can't get her to stop. You happy, daddy? You happy, daddy? You happy, daddy? And what she's doing there is she wants to know, hey, even though I know that I disobeyed against you, even though I know I rebelled against you, even though I know I sinned, because we're trying to get her to understand this concept of rebellion, both against her parents and against us, because she is too a sinner as a three-year-old. She's trying to understand, okay, I've sinned and rebelled against you. I've disobeyed, but are you still happy with me? And in those moments where you're sitting on her bed or you're sitting on the couch and you're trying to both punish her and get her to understand, it's like everything within me is like, how do I get you to understand that even though you rebelled against me, you still have my full delight as my kid? So I'm praying about this sermon and I'm thinking about God as our father in heaven and I'm praying for you and this morning and all of this and the Holy Spirit just breaks in as he does and says, Tim, do you know how badly in those moments you want your daughter to understand
1: your delight in her? That is what I feel for you, only greater because I'm God. And I'm sitting there in my little white chair in our living room. It's like 5.15 in the morning. And I'm just weeping. Because the Lord says over me, Tim, in Christ Jesus, you have my full delight.
0: It's so one of the things I'm just praying for you and for us as a church over the course of the next six weeks is that you would just understand that if you are in Christ Jesus, you
1: have his full delight. You have his delight. And I don't, I don't know
0: how to push that into my own heart. So I especially don't know how to say it with the right words to get it into yours. I only know the Holy Spirit can do what he has consistently done for thousands of years, which is... Tell God's people what is true about them in the gospel. That is the God who meets us in our prayer. The one who knows us and who we have His full delight in Christ. But it gets even better because not only is he our father, he is also our father in heaven. This actually means the, the opposite of what you might think. So you might be tempted to twist it and say, okay, God's in heaven, which means he's far away. But that's not actually Matthew's use of heaven. So the heaven or the kingdom of heaven is uh, throughout the book of Matthew, I think it's around 40 plus times. And heaven is Matthew's preferred language for what other New Testament authors call the kingdom of God. And so he often says the kingdom of heaven where other people would use the kingdom of God. And so to Matthew, heaven is not a far off place so much as it is a realm of God's rule and reign. And so the fact that Matthew would say he is our father in heaven doesn't mean God is far from us, but rather that he's transcendent over us, that he operates in a whole different kingdom or sphere than us. Meaning as our father, he is close and intimate more than we can ever understand or imagine. But as our father in heaven, it also means he is powerful and above and able to do abundantly more than all we ask or imagine or think. That he spoke the world into existence, that he holds the entire universe together, that he can bend the hearts of kings at a whim, who the scriptures say, own the cattle on a thousand hills, which means he's got everything he wants who exists outside of time and rules over all things. That is our father in heaven. Sometimes when we try to describe how big God is, we talk about it like, all right, God's huge. And we're like a little ant, right? Like that's like God's big, big. And I'm like tiny, small, but I'll be honest with you. That doesn't even start to come close to the picture of how big God is and how small we are. Have you ever heard of the crab nebula? Anybody? Yeah, me neither until this week. Uh, So the Crab Nebula is a star that scientists best guess think, based on their research, exploded about a thousand years ago, which I didn't even know stars could explode, but apparently they can explode. And the Crab Nebula is a star that exploded a thousand years ago. Now, if you were to go out on a clear night with a great telescope with binoculars, and you looked for the Crab Nebula, it would look like a tiny speck, like a tiny, tiny star. And yet scientists say that it has been exploding and expanding for the last 1,000 years at the rate of 930 miles a second. Wrap your mind around that for a second. 930 miles a second. We live in a universe where something that expands by 80 million plus miles a day goes unnoticed to our eyes and no one in this room has even heard of. And that, the Crab Nebula, is like a speck to our God. We'll try that again. That, <laughs> I mean, are you kidding me? I don't know how to fix my car if it breaks down. And we have a God in heaven who holds the universe together, including a universe full of crab nebula, exploding scar stars that are like a speck to God. That's the God who also says, meet me in prayer. Cause I know you intimately. That's the God who also says, I know everything about you. I know everything about your life. I know the number of hairs on your head. I know the details of your story. I know your suffering and your pain, what you have walked through and what you will walk through. I hold crab nebulas together and I hold your life together. I want to meet you in prayer. Why wouldn't we pray? I mean, are you kidding me? That God? Our Father in heaven? And so Jesus shows up and his disciples are like, hey, we got to know this, Jesus. How do we pray? (laughs) Teach us to pray. God says, yeah, but first remember who you're talking to. That he is your Father in heaven. As we get up in the morning, and we're wiping the sleep out of our eyes, we make the coffee or the tea or the milk or the water, whatever your drink choice is. And we sit down in that chair on that couch and we open up God's word and we say that little tiny phrase, dear God. And the God on the other side of that prayer who meets us in the ordinary of life is our father in heaven. Who's holding your life together in that moment. Who's holding the world together in that moment and who shows up in that moment present to you when the words of St. Augustine, who we've quoted a couple times over the past few weeks, is closer to you in that moment than you are to yourself. That is the God you meet in prayer. Prayer, at its most basic level, is communion with the wonderful and powerful person of God. We get to be with him. We get to sit and rest and breathe in the presence of the one we love and that loves us in return. And so before we rush into, okay, what am I going to say? What do I need to ask of God? What's going on in my life? What do I bring to him? What do I need to tell him? What's the acronym again? Like, what do I do? We just stop and we go, oh yeah, God is here with me. He's met me here in prayer. He's present with me and near to me and close to me. He knows, as Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, everything I want to ask him anyway. And he's here and present with me. So here's why I said this week might be frustrating and even a little bit weird. Because the first thing sort of to do in prayer is to stop doing some stuff in prayer. The first thing to do in prayer is to say with King David in Psalm 27, One thing have I asked of the Lord, to dwell in his house and gaze upon his beauty. That's the first invitation of prayer. That's the forest. We get to pause and stop and be silent with no agenda and no hurry. And we just get to be with him. And let's be honest, that's just weird for us as modern Americans, right? Like our practice this week, if you're following along in the Lent guide, which I hope you are, is going to be to stop, to sit, to breathe, and to rest into God's presence. And it's one of those things until you do it, I don't know how to tell you how to do it. Like we were wrestling with this for weeks as a teaching team. Like, how do you tell people to, it's like, you just got to do it. Like you just have to do it. And so I thought, well, let's just do it. (laughs) And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to practice this together. We're going to practice just sitting in the presence of God together, that he meets us and we get to commune, be with him. And so Psalm 16 is in your bulletin. There's also Bibles on the rows. Go ahead and get that out. It's going to be helpful for you. I would encourage you not to use your phone just to eliminate distractions. So grab your bulletin, grab a Bible that should be spread out. Psalm chapter 16. If the first invitation of prayer, the force that holds everything else is communion, that it starts with communion, everything else flows out of communion with God, and I think it's fitting that we practice how to do this as followers of Jesus. This is something uh, that Christians for a long, long time have had a rich history of. This is actually something that has kind of fallen away, and that we are rare as modern American Christians that we don't practice this like the rest of church history. Uh, this is what 17th century monk Brother Lawrence called practicing the presence of God. So we're going to do. We're going to practice the presence of God together. This is going to be weird, but I encourage you to lean into it because you, prayer is one of those things you only learn by practicing. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read part of Psalm 16, and then I'm just going to invite us to be quiet and to meditate on the words that are read. Just sort of turn over each idea of the psalm before you. If words come to mind, feel free to say them or to think them to God, but, but I encourage you as much as possible just to rest into his presence. To know that he is here with you. If you're not a Christian, I'm super glad you're here today. Uh, The continual thing you can do over the course of this prayer is to ask God to be real to you, to show himself to you, to reveal himself and who he is to you. But for those of us who follow Jesus, I just want to create space for us to practice communion with God. And so I'm going to invite Brent to come back up. He's just going to play in the background to eliminate all the distractions of sniffles and noises. And we're just going to pray together. We're going to practice the presence of God together. So let me pray for us just to kind of get us um, into this. And then I'll read a verse, give you a prompt, and just let you spend time with your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we we relax now. God, and we take a minute just to put our burdens aside. God, there is a lot of things we could pray for and about in all of our individual lives right now as a community, as a church, family, as individuals, Lord. But we just, we're just going to set those aside, God. We're going to just meet with you. We're going to be in your presence. We're going to rest in the promise that you meet us here too. Our Father in heaven. You're the one who holds the universe together. The crab nebulas are like a speck in your sight, and yet you know us deeper and closer and more intimately than we know ourselves. So we just rest into that. Breathe out our worries and we just relax into your presence. Psalm 16, verse 2. It says, I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And verse 5: The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold. We have no good apart from God, He is our ultimate good, and so let's take a minute just to enjoy Him as such, to enjoy Him and enjoy being in His presence. Bless the Lord who gives me counsel. Night also my heart instructs me. Take just a moment to bless God, to praise him, to rejoice in who he is, to tell him to meditate on all that he is. have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Take a minute just to set the Lord before us, just in our mind's eye, to just look at him, to gaze upon his beauty, as David says in Psalm 27, to look at our Father. Is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Let's take a minute to thank the Lord for who He is, for whatever you need to thank Him for, to just remember how He has made your heart glad. to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He makes known to us the path of life. Take a minute just to rest into that path, into the fullness of joy he offers in his presence. extended time of response. is something we'll do throughout the series where we're just going to spend most of the time singing uh, after the sermon. And so if you want to keep praying, if you want to keep just sitting with the Lord, feel free to do that. If you want to stand and sing, if you want to move around the room, our prayer team's going to be around the room. They'd love to just pray with you and for you about anything the Spirit is doing. Communion tables are open for followers of Jesus. You can sing, you can pray, you can kind of do whatever you want. You've got three songs, so just enjoy the Lord being in His presence together.